Well, happy Mother's Day again, and welcome to another, our second of this new series. We're walking through Philippians. I'm excited for that, but one of the things I keep forgetting to mention is first to say thank you uh, again to all of you who faithfully grab your name tags. It really helps us. Again, that helps us take attendance, so when you don't grab your name tag, we think you're absent. So if you've gotten phone calls, said, hey, we missed you, um, that's why because you don't take your name tag. So first off, thank you for those of you that do. And for those of you that watch online, I know I haven't said this before, but if you're watching this digitally, um, we obviously don't know that you're watching it. So uh, comment on the video if you're watching it on your computer or phone or text into Text in Church. Um, just say, hey, we're watching this morning. That way we kind of keep track of who's watching and some type of attendance for that. But as we jump into Philippians, uh, if you were here this week, uh, last week, or you were able to watch the sermon, how many of you uh, this week, did, the, did you experience the enemy trying to steal your joy? Uh, I know this week I was a little bit more aware of it, so kind of noticed a few instances where I was like, man, he's trying to steal my joy. I've made a stand and said I'm not going to allow the enemy to steal my joy, and certainly this week was one of those weeks where things went Uh, in certain ways that could have easily stolen my joy. And maybe uh, on a week where I wasn't paying attention to it, I wasn't being uh, as as diligent to watch for it, and maybe uh, I would have gotten uh, a little bit more distracted. So I was was thankful for the focus myself this week. Because if we're willing to take a stand and tell the enemy that we're not going to allow him to steal our joy, guess what? He's not going to take that sitting back. Um, certainly not something he's just going to accept. Now, you might say, well, then why would I say that? Because I don't want to get the enemy's attention. Well, if you know Jesus, you've already got his attention. And if we're not willing to take a stand, then that just means he's already got us. We're too afraid. We're too uh, scared. Uh, we don't want to uh, make any waves. And so we kind of just take a mediocre or bottom shelf Christian life and say, well, I just, you know, I won't make any waves. So I won't do anything too great. I won't do anything. Um, you know, too powerful. I, I, I don't want to invite the, the presence of the enemy into my life. Well, guess what? We're in a battle. Um, it's there all the time. And unless we're willing to take a stand and say, I'm going to have joy because the Lord commands us to have joy, then you're probably not going to live a life of joy. But I don't know about you, but I'm kind of tired of allowing the enemy to have his way with my joy. Amen? I don't know if you've ever had one of those weeks where you kind of got to Sunday maybe and you said, man, he got me this week. I was so out of focus. You know, maybe it's as you, as you begin to worship through music or just as you begin to talk to other family members here in our church, you think, man, this week was, this wasn't a good week. And maybe it's a question they ask you or, or some part of a uh, conversation you're having and you realize, man, I wish I'd have done better this week. I wish I would have been more joyful. I wish I would have been more cognizant of what the enemy was doing. I wish I would have been more faithful with that conversation with my coworker, my neighbor, family member, whatever it was. I wish I would have been more like Jesus this week. I'm tired of him having his way with my joy. So I'm so looking forward to this series and to seeing from Paul's perspective, from a man like Paul, what it looks like to be a person who leans so desperately upon Jesus that he can easily make that declaration, ain't nothing going to steal my joy. And man, does Paul make that declaration. He doesn't use those words. Uh, He actually has worse grammar than that, if you know Paul, uh, when he writes. Uh, Paul is known for extremely long run-on sentences. There are some chapters in our Bible which are one sentence for Paul. So, uh, I think if Paul lived today, he might be willing to say that horribly grammatic saying, uh, ain't nothing going to steal my joy. But he lived a life that declared that. He didn't have to say it in words because he lived a life that declared the enemy could not steal his joy. So I'm looking forward to continuing to learn from Paul's life on what that looks like. So I just want to jump right in this morning. We're going to dig right into chapter one. Uh, As you know, Last week, we went through verses 1 and 2, just that, just into the greeting. We barely got into the greeting um, and learned a lot about what Paul's view of his life was. Paul called himself a slave of Jesus Christ. Uh, some of your translations will say servant. They try to use a nicer word, um, maybe a more politically correct word for that term. But Paul literally saw himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. He saw himself, his life was no longer his. He was bought with a price. He owed everything to Jesus, and he considers his life to be his, uh, to be Jesus' life. 
uh, and that he holds no ownership over anything, including his own life. And we see that played out even more in chapter 1 here. So if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along with us, I read from the New Living Translation. You're, willing, uh, you're welcome to follow along in your own Bible with us. The verses will also be on the screen. So I want to open it up in Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says, every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. So, just want to start with that very simple saying. This is a traditional greeting in that time frame. Uh, a lot of this is kind of standard, uh, but I believe Paul meant every word of what he says here. Do you have anybody in your life that every time you think of them, you pray for them? That you lift them up in prayer? Every time God brings them to your mind, you lift them up in prayer? Paul, I don't believe Paul was a liar, and so for him, every time he thought of the Philippian church, he remembered them in prayer. He prayed for them. I think maybe we need to have more of this connection to some of the people that we know. I think I think of people often, and it never crosses my mind to pray for them. I think if you want a place to start with this, we have a few international workers that, are, that have a strong ties to this church. Every time you think of them, just lift them up in prayer. It doesn't have to be a long, drawn-out thing. You don't have to sit for an hour and pray for them. Just a quick prayer. Uh, sometimes I encourage you to sit down and have those hour-long prayer sessions. Um, but every time you think of them, you pray for them. You just lift them up in prayer. And you ask God, hey, is there, is there anything, you know, anything I should pray for for this individual or for these people? Um, and listen to what God has to say. But I think this is just kind of a neat thing to pause and just realize, man, Paul was being very clear with the Philippian church. He doesn't say this to every church. But to him, the Philippian church was near and dear to his heart, that every time he thinks of them, he lifts them up in prayer. Get some friends like that. Verse uh, 4 and 5 says, Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. How often do you pray with joy? Now, I, I believe that a lot of us will worship with joy, but how many of us pray with joy? Paul here is saying he makes his request for all of them with joy, he says. As he prays for the Philippian church, he does it with a heart of joy. I think that's pretty cool. I think a lot of times when I pray, uh, sometimes my heart is burdened for certain things, um, and that's okay. I, do, I know what Paul's saying here is not that, well, when you pray, it has to be with joy. Sometimes your heart's just going to be burdened for things, and you're going to pray that way. But I think some of us maybe have never experienced praying with joy, making requests to God and seeking the face of God with joy. We kind of see prayer as this quiet, hands-folded uh, don't get too excited kind of thing. And that's just simply not the entirety of what prayer is. Prayer sometimes is standing up, pacing the room, and shouting out to God and being joyful about it and joyfully making requests to God. If you've never experienced praying with joy, might I challenge you to try that out. If you want the enemy uh, to not be able to steal your joy, then practice joy in all parts of your life. Don't let the enemy convince you that certain parts of your life are not fitting for joy. Joy fits everywhere, into every aspect of our life and into everything that we do. Joy can be there. And so whether it's praying, worshiping, walking outside, going to work, everything can be done with joy. Maybe except for eating vegetables. I don't know if that can be done with joy, but most everything can be. But we should have joy in just every part of our life. Joy should infiltrate it all and should pour out from us. Verse 6, and I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. This is a verse you've probably heard before. This is one of those highly quoted verses that uh, he, he who began a good work in you will, will uh, continue it until completion. Uh, see, none of us have arrived. Anybody here who thinks they have, they've arrived at a place where righteousness is complete and you no longer have any work to do in, in drawing close to Jesus? Okay. All right, so we're all still messed up, right? Good. We're on the same page. We all have a long way to go. I don't care how long you've walked with Jesus or how righteous or holy you feel you are, there is still a good distance between you and Jesus. 
and our righteousness in His. Even though God speaks over us righteousness, He speaks over us words like holy and righteous and redeemed. The way we live our life is still drastically different from true holiness, from who God is and from His character. We must always pursue Christ. We must always seek Him all day, every day. There's never a day where we can say, wow, well, you know what? Today's my day off of Jesus. Today's my day off of pursuing Christ and and trying to be more like Him. I did a really good job this week, so Saturday, I'm just not going to pursue Him. That's just, that's not the way it works. (laughs) Certainly not the way that Paul saw it work, because for Paul, he's a slave to Christ. Everything was wrapped up in Christ. Everything was Jesus's of Paul's. The work God is doing in us will never be finished until Christ returns. And on, in that moment, we can finally say, all right, I no longer have to strive with all my being to pursue Him, because then we'll be with Him, and we'll, things will be a whole lot different. So uh, I love what Paul is saying here, that uh, he's so certain that God, who began the good work within them, will continue it until completion. But he's very clear. I'm not saying that completion is going to happen on this side of heaven. Verses 7 and 8. So it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. See, now this is a verse that I can share Paul's sentiment to a degree at least, um, because this is how I feel about you, church family. When you, many of you are really good encouragers, you encourage me, uh, you love my family very well, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate that, um, to where we often, my wife and I and, and myself, just in my time with the Lord, would just say, thank you, God, for Dubois Alliance Church. What a blessing it is to serve a church who's so loving, who cares so well, um, I have the same sentiment I think Paul had there um, for, I don't know where, where God, uh, what God's plans for my life are. Um, I know my plan is I'd like to grow old and die here, but I don't know what the Lord's plan is, but uh, I say, Lord, I just, I love these people, and if God were to move me somewhere tomorrow, you all would always have a special place in my heart, and, I, and I, because of the way that you love my family and um, just the gifts you bring or just the words of encouragement, some of you would just text me out of the blue and I can't tell you how much that means to me, um, and I, I feel, I hope that we share the special favor of God together as God continues to bless our church family and our community through us. Verses 9 and 10. I pray that your love will overflow more and more, and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. So now that Paul has expressed his love for the Philippians, he spends the first couple of verses telling them how much he loves them, how much he cares for them, how close and near and dear to his heart they are. Now he kind of switches gears a little bit and he shares, uh, he continues to, to share, I think, what he prays for them, but he's now challenging them a little bit more toward their pursuit of Christian growth. He loves them enough to challenge them toward more of Jesus. I don't know if you have any friendships like this. I don't know how your friendships are in the Lord. If you know, if you have relationships, friendships with people who are Christians, how often do you feel comfortable challenging them? Not on their political stances or on, you know, their diet plan or other things like that. How often do you feel comfortable challenging them on their walk toward Jesus. And they're saying, hey, maybe you shouldn't consider this. I think often uh, the enemy has created this divide between our natural lives and our Christian life. And it's, it's okay to, to argue with someone about sports or about politics or about all these other things, but oh no, you don't talk about Jesus. Don't, don't challenge their walk with the Lord because then you're holier than thou or, or then you're condemning them or you're judgmental or all these different things. And I think a lot of our friendships could use a lot more of this, a lot more of this challenging, this loving in a way. A lot of our marriages, I mean, some of us can't even do that in our own marriage. Can't challenge our spouse to walk more like Jesus, to encourage them in a loving way. And I think Paul here, he's, he's awesome at this. Even though he can be uh, pretty brash and rude, for the Philippian church, 
He loves them so well, and he's able to encourage them with such compassion and love, and we should mirror that same thing in our relationships, in our friendships, in our co-workers, and every place we find ourselves. We should be able to encourage others to walk with Jesus. So a question just from what Paul says here. How could your love overflow more and more? What would that look like? I don't know if you ever do any self-reflection. I, I ask you questions every week, so I hope uh, if you're a note-taker, you write them down and maybe spend some time asking yourself that question. What would it look like this week for my love to overflow more and more? What would it look like at home? What would it look like as a dad, as a mom, as a husband, as a wife? What would it look like as a coworker? What would it look like as a neighbor for my love to overflow more and more this week? What would it look like in each of these scenarios for your love to overflow more and more? It's so easy to get caught up in the normal same thing every week. I know this because when I think of you and to pray for you, I just go through the pews because you all sit in the same place every week. We like normal. We like common. We like that. And so it's very easy to get kind of stuck in a rut and they just do the same thing over and over and over again. And unless we're willing to ask ourselves questions like this, I don't think we're going to grow that much in those areas. But if we go into work every week, or we interact with our neighbor constantly, we think, how could my love overflow more and more in my community? How could it overflow more and more to my coworkers, especially that coworker I can't stand? What would it look like for, my, for Jesus' love to overflow more and more out of me? Because trust me, if you try to love people that you don't like with your love, you'll fail. And that's why maybe you failed so often. But to allow Jesus' love to pour out of us, to overflow more and more. And from the second part of that, how are you growing in knowledge and understanding? Let me just be very clear. If you're the sum total of your growing in knowledge and understanding is Sunday mornings, you're failing. It shouldn't be that way. We shouldn't come to church looking for our, the completion of our knowledge and understanding. I don't preach good enough for that, all right? So we should be finding ways throughout the week to grow in knowledge and understanding. One of the things I'll constantly promote is that right now media that we have at the church. Man, there is thousands, thousands of things in there for you to grow in your knowledge and understanding videos and sermons and conferences that you can watch and listen to as a family, as a couple, as an individual, that you can grow in your knowledge and understanding. There's just so much information out there. There's free Bible softwares that you can, if you want to dig more into the scriptures and learn more about it. There's, I mean, if you want to actually invest money into Jesus, I know that's a crazy idea, but you can buy some really good software too and actually grow in your knowledge and understanding as well. But we should always be growing in our knowledge and understanding. It's not enough to say, oh, I don't really understand that word pastor used. I don't really understand that verse I read the other day. Ah, I just skip over it and just keep moving on. And that's where we miss out on learning more about going deeper with Jesus. And if we're talking this year, uh, which we are, about growing our foundation in Jesus, then grow your depth of learning. Grow the, the ways that you learn the information that you pull. And if you're not a reader, become a reader. Trust me, I hate reading. I hate reading, well, I like reading certain books. I like reading for fun. Absolutely hate reading for growth for some reason. So I'm challenging to do it because I do it. Uh, it's not easy, um, but I power through it. I'm powering through books and I challenge you to do the same thing. Most people will tell you, a person who reads is a person who's growing. That's just a fact of life. If you continue to read uh, certain books, obviously, you know, you know, if you're reading Stephen King all the time, you're probably not growing that much. Uh, but read good Christian, uh, well, the books aren't safe, but people, uh, Christian authors, read their stuff. There's some amazing stuff out there. Uh, and you should be growing in your knowledge and understanding. And obviously, definitely be grow growing in your knowledge and understanding by reading the Bible. If you've not if you don't have any type of reading plan and you think that might be something you want to do, you can always jump in on the churches. Where we've been doing one since January, you can just jump right in where we are. You don't have to start from January 1st. Trust me, don't try that. Uh, you'll fail, you'll give up, you'll get burned out. Just jump in right where we are. It's an amazing uh, plan. I'm trying to think of the word I was using, look, looking for there. Uh, it's an amazing reading plan with the videos. The videos are fantastic, amen? 
And those of you that follow along, they're awesome. Uh, so there's little videos strewn throughout. Every couple days you get a video um, from the Bible Project, which they do amazing videos. It's a great reading plan, great way to grow in your knowledge and understanding. I, I know from a lot of testimonies of you telling me, a lot of you have grown already incredibly in your knowledge and understanding just through those videos and the Bible reading plan this year. So, so many ways to grow. Always be grown. Verse 11. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ, for this will bring much glory and praise to God. So what is the fruit Paul is talking about here? Well, very clearly he states the fruit of the Spirit is, what are the first two? Love, love and joy. I don't know if this is a prioritized list uh, from him, but love, obviously the most important. Jesus, when Jesus was asked what are the, what's the most important commandment, Jesus says what? Love God, love others. Love is absolutely essential. And Paul lists the next thing as joy, love and joy. And I don't think that was by accident. I think Paul was very clear, love is so important, but joy comes right after that. Any of you ever, don't raise your hands, any of you ever known a miserable Christian? Man, I don't care how much they love Jesus, they're a bad testimony. They're miserable all the time, and they call Jesus their Lord. I cannot fathom how they could be a good testimony of Jesus' love. Joy is where that comes out. How many of you have known someone who has gone through the most horrible circumstances and yet was so joyful in the Lord? What a testimony that is. Just naturally, people want to be around someone like that. Their love for God, their relationship with Him is so clearly communicated through their joy. So may you be filled, always filled, with the fruit of your salvation. And if you know Jesus, fruit is a natural byproduct. You will grow in love, joy, peace, patience, all all the fruits of the Spirit you will grow in. And if you're not growing in them, that should be a pretty good red flag of what is going on with my life. And it all brings much glory and praise to God. Verse 12. And I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. So, Paul is in prison. We don't know how long he's been in prison. We do know uh, most scholars would agree that this imprisonment Paul is writing from was one of the two-year imprisonments that he had in Rome. And this is not his first time in prison. It certainly won't be his last time in prison. Uh, Paul is getting pretty accustomed to prison. And he's acknowledging that everything that has happened to him is to spread the good news of Jesus. How much would you be willing to endure for the spread of the gospel? I don't know if you've ever asked yourself that question. What would I be willing to endure if the gospel went forward? If somebody heard the good news for the first time, what would I be willing to endure? Maybe that's too scary of a question for you to consider. But Paul says, from his dirty, disgusting prison, man, this is all good because the gospel is going forward. Paul's encouraging them with the reality that the persecution he is currently suffering, and there's, there's no end in sight. Paul doesn't know how long he'll be in prison, that the persecution he's suffering has not hindered the spread of the gospel. It might have been discouraging for a church like uh, the Philippians, like, uh, To put this in perspective, imagine if one of our international worker couples, we heard, yeah, they got thrown in prison. What would we immediately do? Hopefully, begin to pray that God would release them. Because why? Because we would think the spread of the gospel would be hindered by their imprisonment. We would think, ah, well, work can't happen now. They're in prison. That's what I would think. And I don't know if anybody else would be on board with that, but that's immediately where my brain would go. Oh, they can't do the work they were sent there to do. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Quite the opposite, as a matter of fact. I know they locked me in prison, but man, the gospel's going forward. The work's being accomplished, Paul is saying. Instead, he's saying it has furthered the spread of the gospel, so don't be discouraged. Verse 13, for everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. So this is an interesting verse here, because 
uh, what it does is it communicates Paul's demeanor while he's in prison. He's saying, without saying it, that he's living in such a way, he's interacting with the guards, with these people, which obviously if you are a Jewish person in jail, um, you're, not at the, you're not a VIP. Uh, so Paul is in this prison, and they all acknowledge, they're all able to see, obviously this guy Paul is not in here for committing a crime. He's in here because he is a Christian. Now, most people would be aware that there's some type of persecution happening versus, against Christians, um, and Paul is communicating, yeah, the, the guards, everybody here, they all know, I didn't commit a crime, that I'm righteous, that his integrity is intact. Now, for that to happen, not only would Paul have to be able to communicate why he was arrested, but his life would have to be lived in such a way that he would be believed. I don't know if you, would, if you got thrown in prison, how you would feel about the guys that were torturing you and, and keeping you in prison and possibly beating you or mistreating you, but Paul interacted with them in such a way that it became very clear to them, man, we can't get this guy down. There's something different about this guy. Now, I don't know how many other prisoners were in that jail. Paul doesn't ever say that, and we don't have that information. Chances are pretty good there's other prisoners in there, and they're probably angry and would fight, and would try to get out, and would try to do all these things, and yet Paul is different. There's something very different about him, and he says, even the prison guards know, I didn't commit a crime. I'm in here for the sake of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, and because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. So, this is another cool byproduct of Paul's imprisonment, is that uh, the believers have actually gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. Now, again, let's say um, the couple we know in, in, in Mexico, they get thrown in prison. How many of you would sign up for the next mission trip there? No? Yeah. It doesn't instill a whole lot of boldness in us if we know there's a pretty good chance we're getting arrested too if we go to this place where other people we know have gotten arrested. And so when I first read this, and I just preparing for their messages, I thought, well, this is odd. Why would somebody getting locked up and being persecuted embolden others? I think maybe it would make them a little more timid. They would maybe walk on eggshells a little more because they don't want to get arrested. And instead, the exact opposite has happened with Paul's imprisonment. So what this means to me is that the believers see Paul in prison, but they see the way he deals with his persecution. They see the way that he has uh, is he's handling his imprisonment in this less than ideal conditions. And because of his actions, because of the way his joy overflows, they're able to say, you know what? If Paul can do this in prison, then we can do this out here. And you know what? Worst case scenario, we end up with Paul. That seems to be the reaction they have to Paul's living in prison. So a question comes from that for me. When was the last time the way you reacted to a problem or persecution made people bolder and more confident instead of more afraid? See, this last year, we all went through something. And I don't know how your conversations go, even still today, about whether you're talking about the government or you're talking about the COVID or you're talking about whatever you're talking about, but your response to it, has it emboldened people or has it instilled more fear? Have you continued the fear-mongering that happens every time you turn on the news and encourage people, you should be afraid, be afraid of this, be afraid of that, be cautious of this, be so afraid of this, be so afraid of that? Because that's not what Paul did. Paul didn't say, hey, be careful as you preach the gospel or you're going to jail. Be careful being a Christian or you'll end up like me. Paul's joy overflowed in such a way people said, you know what? Even if we end up like him, it's worth it. And so, when you're faced with a problem or a persecution, does your reaction embolden others to say, man, it always seemed like that would be a bad thing to go through, but look at the way they're dealing with it. How amazing is that? Now, you've probably experienced this. You've known somebody who's gone through an absolute terrible circumstance, and yet they maintain joy. That doesn't mean they were always happy. It didn't mean that they didn't weep their eyes out at times, but it meant they kept joy through the circumstances. And that's a big deal. That says something 
about their walk with Jesus. Verses 15 and 16. It's true that some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry, but others preach about Christ with pure motives. They preach because they love me, for they know I have been appointed to defend the good news. So this is interesting. It doesn't take long for jealousy and rivalry to infiltrate the church. Um, This is the generation where Jesus died. This isn't like 100 years later. Um, This is very shortly after Jesus died, very shortly after the church actually begins its movement, and already jealousy and rivalry have infiltrated the church. Still, Paul is saying there are some that preach from pure motives. There are some who still preach for the right reasons. And it almost seems here, as you're reading this, if you're going verse by verse through this, it seems like, oh, wow, this is, Paul's kind of taking a downward turn here. Now it's about Paul's kind of sharing some of his disappointment. He's getting a little sad. He's getting a little depressed. Um, it seems like his frustration is kind of coming out in the letter, but it's actually not that way at all. Verses 17 and 18. Those others do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely, intending to make my chains more painful to me. But, Paul says, but, eh, that doesn't matter. Whether their motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached either way. So I rejoice, and I will continue to rejoice. You can't get this guy down. There's people out there preaching, and and what I can surmise from what Paul is saying is these people are out there preaching and probably saying, well, if this guy Paul was so righteous, he wouldn't be in jail. If he was as holy as us, if if he stood as upright as we did, then he wouldn't be in jail. And I think that's what he's saying when he's saying they're trying to make my chains hurt even more because they're trying to downgrade his character, trying to put into question his integrity and the reason he's in jail in the first place. And Paul is saying, ah, that's what they're doing. But he says, you know what? It doesn't matter. The gospel's going forward. Now, I don't know about you, but I've listened to certain pastors preach, um, even some that I would maybe label as a health and wealth gospel. That, that one really irritates me. That's like a special irritation for me. Uh, but some of them, they preach the gospel. And so at the end of the day, it's like, well, is the gospel going forward? I don't like it. But what's important is the gospel goes forward. That's what's important. Now, some of them don't preach the gospel. But we should be more focused on the gospel going forward than whether or not we like something, or whether or not it's our preference. See, Paul is able to see the blessing here, even when people are trying to make his life more difficult, even when they have evil intentions. Paul is able to see the blessing in that because there ain't nothing going to steal his joy. He's determined that his joy rests in God. Because Paul's main concern wasn't about himself. It was about the gospel. That was his drive. Paul, who's already indicated, he sees himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. His personal well-being, his personal status, it means nothing to him. All that matters is the gospel goes forward. Verse 19. For I know that as you pray for me and the spirit of Jesus Christ helps me, this will lead to my deliverance. Paul's confidence wasn't in himself. He greatly valued the prayers of the Philippian church, and he leaned into the strength of the Holy Spirit. You can see that by what he's writing. And it almost seems here like Paul's hopes were on getting out of prison, that he says, you know, my deliverance, that he's talking about his deliverance. But from the next few few verses, you can see very clearly, Paul's hope wasn't on, the, the word deliverance he uses isn't for getting out of prison. That's not what he saw as his deliverance. Verse 20. For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past, and I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. See, they can put Paul in this gross, disgusting prison. They can lock him up. They can take away his freedom. They can try to take away his dignity, but that'll never make him ashamed because his pride doesn't come in himself. His pride comes in serving Jesus Christ. So even when God calls him to horrible circumstances, he's able to to not be ashamed because shame for him would be not being a good servant of Jesus Christ. That would be shameful to him. Even if he lived in in a great palace, even if he had all the, the trappings of this life and everything looked really good to him, it would be shameful to live a life that wasn't totally dedicated to God. His life is God's to do with as he 
wills. Verse 21. One of the most iconic verses of Philippians. For to me, living means living for Christ. And dying is even better. Now most of you have this memorized in a different translation. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's how we, most of us know it. At first glance, we, some of us, well, this has been quoted so often that we maybe lose a little bit of this, but honestly, this is a weird verse. When you look at this and you think about where Paul is, it seems like kind of a weird verse, that he's talking about dying being better. It almost seems like he's somewhat suicidal as you read this, like he's looking forward to death. We might think that... Uh, Paul feels that dying would be better because of his ter terrible circumstances. If he finds himself in prison, locked up with no hope for escape, no hope for ever getting out of there, and he says, well, I think dying would be better, some of us might say, I can see where he's coming from there. But that's not what he's talking about. Paul is saying, first, to live means living for Christ. That if he's going to continue living, it has to be for Jesus. There's no option here for him. There's no, well, for me to live means having a nice house. It means, you know, my family's doing well. It means I have a nice car. It means I have money in the bank. That's what living means to me. Have you ever asked yourself that question? What does living mean to you? What is living? What if it was taken away would no longer be living for you? Good health a nice house, a good family. I don't know. What is that for you? That for me, this is living. This is life. Having something to do, uh, being involved in this, that, or the other thing. But if it was removed, they would no longer be living. For, for Paul, the only thing for him is Christ. If he couldn't live for Christ anymore, then he couldn't live. That would not be living for him. But to die, he says, is even better. He acknowledges there's no option for living for self. That, that's not on the table because he's a slave of Jesus Christ. Verse 22. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. Paul acknowledges, acknowledges that living means that he can continue to work for Christ. That's, what that's the benefit of living is that if you get tomorrow, you get to live for Christ. What if we viewed our life that way? What if we woke up tomorrow, Monday morning, and said, wow, I got another day. That means I, need, I get to serve Christ one more day. What if we began to live a life like that, where every day we woke up and said, whew, another day to serve him. Awesome. Thank you, Lord. That would probably change a lot of the way we live. Instead of waking up and saying, okay, got to make that money, got to get things together, got to do things, got to build my kingdom today. And that's where our focus begins. And then maybe at some point during the day, you're like, oh, I didn't do my Bible reading. Okay, God's kingdom is important. Okay, back to my kingdom. But if we woke up with that mindset of, all right, God's given me another day. And so if I'm going to live, it's going to be for him. What does that look like today? Verse 23. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. See, on the other hand, Paul is so confident in his salvation that he sees death as a positive thing. He sees that as an upgrade to where he's at. And I don't think that's just because he's in prison. I think Paul could have been living in a palace and still felt the exact same way. He actually sees wanting death as selfish, saying, ah, I want it so much because then I'd be with Jesus. But the better thing would be living here on earth and serving Christ here where I am. Can you imagine being so enamored with Jesus and his kingdom that you're literally torn between wanting to continue living and to serve, and, and serve him and then to be with him. That you really can't decide which one would be better. I was talking about this with the elders this morning and I, I'm not there, I'll be honest with you. I got two kids, I got a beautiful wife, I got a good life. I don't, I don't think if Jesus were to show up and give me that option of dying right now and, and leaving all of that and or going to heaven and being with him, I would struggle with that choice. And I'm just being honest with you this morning. That's where I'm at. I love Jesus. I can't say that I love him enough to want to give that up, to just willingly toss that to the side and leave that for him. So I don't know where you are with that this morning. I know I'm not there. 
I've got work to do still. Verse 24, but for your sakes, it is better that I continue to live. Paul's saying, remember, he's writing to the Philippian church here, and he's saying, it's for your sake that I consider living to be beneficial. I consider that. He's not saying he feels obligated that, that, that being with them is more important than being with Jesus. He's saying, but for your sake, I see that God wants me to be here because I'm going I'm to continue to serve you. His great love for the Philippian church helps him decide that living is the best course. Verses 25 and 26. Knowing this, I am convinced that I will remain alive so I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. And when I come to you again, you will have even more reason to take pride in Christ Jesus because of what he is doing through me. So I think this is interesting because Paul here is saying uh, he's convinced he's going to live, which is not guaranteed. At this point in time, it's very likely that a few of the disciples have already died. They've already been murdered for their faith. And so Paul is so confident. I, this must come from his closeness to God, that God has already told him, this, you're going to continue through this. You're going to make it. And so he's so confident that he's going to make it through this. He's going to live, and he's going to continue to, to serve them and to help them grow and, uh, and experience the what? The joy of their faith. That's his goal, is to help them experience the joy of their faith. Paul then encourages them to continue to live holiness, to live in holiness, and to live worthy of their calling. That's where joy comes out. Verse 27. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then, whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Paul here, and if you read a lot of Paul's writings, you'll notice there's a, a certain, there's a few themes that run throughout, but one of the strongest themes of Paul's writings is unity. He's always talking about unity in the church. It's so vital and so important to him. It's what we need, church. I'll say it like I said it a thousand times before. It's one of the greatest tools we have for the furthering of the gospel is unity as a church family. It's so important. Paul saw it. He writes about it in almost every letter he writes. He talks about unity. He's talking about it again here. It was so important that they take a stand for their faith, but they needed to do it together. Paul was telling them, we don't need any lone rangers. It doesn't matter how great your individual relationship with Jesus is. What matters is that you're doing this together, that you're standing together, that nobody's falling away. That's what's important, Paul is saying. Verse 28 says, don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved even by God himself. The Philippians here, we get a pretty good indication, are obviously suffering persecution. Obviously, they're enduring some type of persecution. And Paul is saying it would be their boldness through the persecution in the face of such persecution that would be a sign that they were God's people and that they weren't going to be the ones that fell. That's what maybe we need a little bit more of. We face persecution. We think, oh, oh, better back off. That must not be of God. That door got closed. And we call persecution or a pushing back a closed door. And I don't think that's what Paul is getting at here. Verse 29. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. How many of us consider it a privilege to suffer? Okay, so we got some room to grow in that one. Uh, I know I'd, I wouldn't consider it a privilege immediately if I began to suffer for Jesus. If they locked me up tomorrow for preaching, uh, I, I can pretty much promise you my first thought wouldn't be, woohoo, I get to suffer. I would not be very excited about that. But Paul is encouraging them in this way. Consider it a privilege. You have a privilege of trusting in Christ, but you also have the privilege of suffering for him. See, Paul kind of saw this as a hand-in-hand kind of thing. If you know Christ, you're going to suffer for him. If you're living a life that says Jesus is in charge, that you're just a slave of Jesus Christ, persecution will come. But see, that's where we kind of differ in our thought process. We say, I'm going to follow Jesus, but I'm going to avoid persecution at all costs. 
I don't, want to, I don't want persecution at work. I don't, want, you know, I don't even want them to know that I'm a Christian. So I'm going to be very quiet about that. I'm going to be very uh, secretive about that part of my life. And, and my neighbors, I, I don't really want to be persecuted there either. So I'm going to be very, very cagey about my Christianity there as well. And Paul is saying, man, if you're living sold out, it's going to happen. And it's a privilege to suffer for Jesus. Verse 30. We are in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I am still in the midst of it. So I think it's interesting here. Paul doesn't seek to make light of their persecution. Paul's not saying, well, my persecution is really, really tough, and yours is, you know, it's okay. He's saying, we're in this together. He very clearly makes, is not making light of whatever persecution the Philippian church is in, engaged in, whatever's happening to them. But he speaks again of that togetherness. He encourages them to remember this word, together. Man, if we church could get that word more into our brain, together, together, when we struggle, when we have a problem, when we're having a tough week, how often do we reach out to other people in our church family and say, yeah, I'm having a real tough week. Can you pray for me? How often do we feel comfortable just calling up a few people or throwing it on the, the Facebook prayer page? Hey, can you guys pray for me? I'm just having a tough week. I feel like the enemy is really getting me down this week. We're in this together. Amen? Okay, I hope, I hope you're with me on that. We are in this together. So as we close, what stole your joy this week? I don't know if you can pinpoint an instance or a time where your joy got robbed this week. I know for me it was, I can pinpoint a couple times where something took out my joy. Trust me, I drove in New Jersey this week, so my joy got robbed pretty often. Uh, not going to lie. Made a quick trip to Jersey and had to repent a lot. Uh, but how determined were you to keep the enemy from stealing your joy? Did you make that declaration? Did you make that stand? that you're not going to let him steal your joy? The Bible's clear. John 10.10. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Now, rich and satisfying might mean a little bit of a different thing between you and God. Uh, His idea of rich and satisfying might not be what you think. Uh, He might not be thinking, you know, private jet and a house in the Bahamas. Uh, You might but that's not, certainly not what Paul is, or, uh, what, uh, is talking about here in John. Rich and satisfying life. Some of you who, you don't have a second house, you don't have a private jet, but you, as you look at your life, as you've lived it for the Lord, you say, yeah, it's been rich, and it's been satisfying. And that's what God wants for us. And I just pretty much promise you, a rich and satisfying life is not in your future if you allow the enemy to steal your joy. If you don't make a stand and say, my joy is out of your reach, Satan. My joy is the Lord's, and it's rested in the Lord, and so you can never steal it. One thing is for sure. It's God's intention that you live a life of joy. Just do a quick search sometime, if you don't believe me. Google search, how many times is is joy a commandment in the Bible? And you'll see it's commanded many times. It's not a byproduct. It's a choice. And I don't know about you, but I'm going to choose joy this week. So, as we finish, we're going to be playing a song here. Again, if you're watching from home, I encourage you to either YouTube or uh, Spotify, however you use music, uh, look up Old Church Choir, and we're just going to worship. So, I want you to get on your feet, and I want you to declare to the enemy that he ain't going to steal your joy. Whether that means clapping, whether that means singing loud, whether that means raising your hands, I want you to be people of joy this morning. Let's declare, ain't nothing going to steal our joy.
Amen. God, I pray that we would be people who the enemy can't steal our joy. That our joy would be so rested in you, so sure in you, so secure in you, that no matter what happens this week, our joy would not be stolen. And God, I pray that when we experience that, when, when it happens and the enemy does steal our joy, that we would be quick to just stomp our feet and clap our hands and say, there's nothing going to steal my joy. And we restore that joy in you, Lord. God, give us the ability to take that stand. Give us the boldness to make that claim, knowing the enemy will try to challenge that. And I welcome that this week because my joy is in you, God. And I want to make sure that it's in you. So Lord, I, I pray for each and every one of us that our joy would be experienced this week, that our neighbors, that our family, that our coworkers, that people in a grocery store would know something is different about us because your joy in us would overflow. That like Paul was talking about in this chapter, that our love would overflow more and more and that our joy would be made complete in you because that's when we begin to become this amazing testimony of who you are. Would your joy overflow in us this week? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Happy Mother's Day. Have a great week.